Welcome. This is Speaking of Shakespeare, a series of conversations about all things Shakespearean with a focus on new digital technology and also about developments in Shakespearean performance and education across the globe. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording this introduction from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. The following conversation is with Professor Alexa Alice Jobin of the George Washington University. Alexa was born, raised, and educated in Taiwan and continued her studies in Germany. She then found her way to Stanford University, where she earned a PhD in comparative literature. Among her many other publications, she is the author of a soon to be released book on Shakespeare in East Asia. And we'll talk about this and other things today. I should add that she is the co founder and co director of the Global Shakespeare, an open access performance archive hosted at MIT. Alexa will explain this project and also talk about other digital projects she is involved with in Shakespeare and in early modern drama. I should add that this series is funded by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, also called Kaken. And this organization thankfully includes support for research into humanities. Good afternoon to you, Alexa. It's your afternoon. Yes, it's、and、actually my early evening at 5 30. You have a book coming out, and I wanted to make sure before I forget that we show everyone your book and your forthcoming book.、Uh, from there it is, there it is. Excellent. Shakespeare in East Asia, and that's out of、uh, Oxford, Oxford UP. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Now, I've already introduced you, but I couldn't go into your background. But first of all, could you do a little, give us a little summary of, of the book? The, the book covers a large number of films and stage productions of Shakespeare after the 1950s. And a lot of them came out of East Asia, but that's not the only focus. I compare them to.、Uh, To adaptations from other cultural locations that happen to appropriate East Asian themes, such as Michael Amarita's 2000 film, Hamlet, that's set in Manhattan in the 21st century. And in there,、uh, we have a large number of references to Vietnamese Buddhism. So the purpose of the book is to look at instances like this and reconsider what Shakespeare and East Asia mean. And what they might mean together. Along the way, I discover, for example, Akira Kurosawa. Many people know of his wonderful films and Shakespeare adaptations, but they may not know he actually influenced George Lucas,、mm -hmm. as well as Star Wars. It's just a, 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 especially his narrative pattern. He likes to begin an epic story in medias res. And if you think about Star Wars, if you have Princess Leia fighting the, the Imperial troops, the, the stormtroopers,、um, and we are sucked into that world, and gradually we begin to appreciate the richness of those layers, and and that's a unique world-building strategy that Kurosawa pioneered, and then he went elsewhere. So the book looks at mutual influences rather than telling a 
one directional story of how Shakespeare got to East Asia, but rather the interactions between the icons. Well, you know, the in, in Medias Res, that's a Shakespearean habit, too. We, I, come to think of it, you know, in beginning of Hamlet, you're just dropped into a scene where these soldiers are guarding things. And it, this happens in several cases I can think of. And it takes you a while to sort of get with it. Uh, but that's right. So Kurosawa, this is interesting in the, uh, in the sense that there's a, there's a lot of communication and recommunication I, I'm going to use the word East and West. Uh, I, I'm, later on, I think I'm going to talk about that because it, we're going to talk a little bit about decolonizing uh, Shakespeare. Is there something we can call Asian uh, that is consistent from you know, the many diverse cultures in Asia, the, a consistent trend in some of the productions? Did you see some consistency, say, from Hong Kong to mainland China to Japan, Korea, whatever, uh, that could be called distinctly East Asian? I would say there's the reinsertion of the personal. The directors are not content with being tasked to represent their culture. So in Korea, for Ote Suk, who is really prolific and his works have toured really widely to Edinburgh, London, and, and, and other main festivals. Kurosawa is known throughout the world. Yukio Ninagama from Japan is um, a mainstay in, in British theater. He's as much part of British theater as it is of Japanese theater. And in all these masters, you actually see forceful, Persuasive, persuasive statements about the personal, about who they are, about the aesthetics, rather than just one consistent trait. You might say Nina Gawa is very well known for his famous 1980s Cherry Blossom Macbeth that has constantly been revived. And most recent revival was actually 2018 at the Lincoln Center in New York. Audiences to, to, to follow your turn, audiences East and West, they, they see different things in it, right? For those who are proficient with, with Japanese traditions, they understand cherry blossom represents death and the repose of the soul. For others, they see beauty, they see the contrast of heart-aching beauty and, the, and murder, right? So, so kind of seeing the contrast, no matter what they see, that's just very iconic. So I cannot extrapolate something distinctly East Asian, but I can, I can tell you what is the signature shots? Signature shots of Kurosawa. What is the signature move of Yukio Ninagawa? In his case, for example, it's a, the daily object writ large. He likes framing devices. And in that Macbeth that I just described, we have a family altar writ large that becomes the stage set, for example. Um, Otesuk really likes to combine what is perceived as traditional Korean performing methods with what is typically Western realistic staging stagecraft. Mm -hmm. And um, all of these directors have innovative uses of music as well as framing devices. If I'm pressed to name one thing, maybe it's religion. You see religious tropes re-emerging in several of those works. The Cherry Blossom Macbeth, um, it gives the story a Buddhist spin, even if the music is really um, heavily Catholic. 
And I was struck by that combination. Just as your eyes are following one thread, the music is telling you something else, or perhaps it's, it's, it's a hybrid landscape. Um, in Taiwanese director and actor Wu Xingguo's works, Buddhism plays a key role. So again, it's not always religion co-opted for redemption, but religion is an element that seems meaningful to a number of directors. They like to appropriate that along with the new theater they are working with, they're coming up with, right? And along with the Shakespeare narrative. Yeah, well, that is uh, that is so interesting. I I could talk with you for hours about religion and how religion is managed. Let's say Western Christianity, let's just say it, is managed in a place like Japan. And I'm certain the same in Korea, where most people, 98 percent of the inhabitants would not identify as Christian. They would not uh, say that they are, uh, you know, either church going Christians or Christian at all. And. And so when they bring in Western forms like this, I think that they, the directors you're talking about, the, the brilliant productions you're talking about, they play with that a bit and uh, come up with some interesting combinations that you were talking about. Well, yeah. yeah. It's religion, religions, East and West, indeed. I wanted to add that Kurosawa's films often symbolize Buddhist enlightenment. Yeah. But, but, the narrative is not actually overtly religious in nature. So you see a lot of Buddhist symbols, but it doesn't mean that the narrative takes side with Buddhism in terms of the redemption it might offer. Yeah. Well, we're in the Christmas season now, December 2020, in Tokyo, and they they do it here They because, you know, it's good for the economy You can uh, and department stores and so forth. And you go into convenience stores or supermarkets and you'll hear that, 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 that. And then, you know, silent night, holy night, you know, religious hymns and so forth that are just playing. But no one in the store is a practicing Christian, but they like Christmas. So they import all of the fun stuff and and forget all of the uh, Christian service. And of course, there's no uh, conflict here. You don't have a group of people saying we need to put Christ back into Christ Christmas and, you know, angry people who are thinking that uh, Christmas is being destroyed by um, some, you know, vast liberal conspiracy or whatnot. And it's a lot of fun uh, here. But uh, I, I think that that's a, probably a fairly shallow example of what you're talking about. You don't get the weight of Western Christianity, so you can uh, you're, you're you're free with to to do things that you might not feel as free to do in a, in a Western production, perhaps. Is it true that in Japan they have to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken Kentucky, during Christmas? Kentucky, the Colonel, is mythical. Yeah, the happy uh, grandfather, the happy grandfather and fried chicken. I, I thought it was because he looked like Santa Claus. Yes, yes. Uh, he, beloved of children. Now, speaking of moving back and forth, east and west, that is something you did. Uh, if we use the standard definition of east and west, you started east and moved west into Europe and then found your way to Stanford University in California and then kept moving uh, east again to Washington, D.C. 
And so I want to ask you to expound on that a little bit. You, you were born and raised in Taiwan. So let's move from there and tell us the, the, um, the points, the high points or the turning points that made you, uh, uh, that made you a traveler, uh, a, a, a real traveler, but a cultural traveler also. I think I started as a cultural traveler, and um, I initially encountered Shakespeare in Taiwanese translation. It's actually a translation of Charles and Mary Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, the famous Victorian era redaction that moralizes the stories. It's largely meant intended for children, and especially girls, who would otherwise not have access to their father's library interesting read. So those are in prose forms. It's not the complete works, but they capture most of it. Hamlet becomes the omen from a ghost, for example. Um, the Merchant of Venice is a pound of flesh. So they capture the outlandish and there's always a moral lesson. Um, later on, I began encountering Shakespeare in college in fragmentary forms, such as film clips. I remember going to the, at that time, video audio library, to watch the films and to obtain special permission for study purposes to actually starting making copies for my own collection. Um, I ran into Lawrence Olivia, for example, for the first time. Never heard of this night before. Uh, I, I guess that's a, that's a kindergarten version of what I ended up doing. Um, I co-founded a digital humanities project at MIT called the Global Shakespeare. So, what, what we do is, is collect videos from all over the world and add subtitles whenever possible and uh, offer them on an open access platform for everyone to use. Okay, so, so, so as a child, you began this collection yeah. as a child uh, or this habit of collecting and, and assembling, in fact, curating uh, the... Uh, uh, a collection of, of things Shakespearean uh, that began with Charles Lamb and what you could gather from the local library uh, and so forth. And then after you became a professor and uh, active in the profession, you worked uh, with, uh, at MIT with MIT to do the same thing, except on a grander scale. And that's the global Shakespeare now. Yes, uh, yes. I guess you can say that that's my passion. I, I've been a collector, like to collect. Yes. Um, initially, of course, it's quite innocent, just um, finding these peculiar and interesting, and I want to collect them, like you collect cards, collect stones, collect seashells. Um, that's what it meant to me. They, they also piqued my curiosity. Um, Taiwan is an island nation. It's surrounded by ocean. So um, you can't really, and it's a small island. You can't any venture anywhere that's a bit farther without going abroad. So traveling is always on people's mind, I guess. And, and this little growing collection of outlandish tales and exotic performances were, to me, a gateway to different worlds, but eventually also a ticket to do travel. That's when I immigrated to the States. But I have continued to collect, to collect performances, videos, and you'll probably agree, I think scholarship is really about collecting. You, you can collect texts that are useful. So it, 
So it all has to start with some kind of personal collection, a personal archive, and you speak from there. Yeah, as well as ideas. You collect ideas and cross-reference uh, ideas. Uh, the, the Charles Lamb, just out of curiosity, was that a, the translation, was it Mandarin or was it Cant Cantonese? Or, or It was a Mandarin translation. I think part of it was actually classical Chinese that's trying to reflect the style that was used. So as a child, did you have to learn both uh, main uh, forms of Chinese when you were growing up? or right. Yeah. Right. In, in European countries, in Taiwan, uh, not so much in Japan and not so much in the States, but people who grow up in multilingual type environments, uh, I think that opens up a, a portal too for the, uh, uh, maybe you have a, a confidence that you could take on a third language. Did you study English in school as a child? Yes. That's simply the requirement. We all have to study English. Not, not as interesting. I wish that they would teach it the way I teach today. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that we could go into. We're going to stick with Shakespeare. But I do have a question. Did they start you early, like in kindergarten and elementary school with English? Um, it's actually toward the end of elementary school. Uh-huh. Um, for fifth graders and sixth graders. Yeah. So you did undergraduate in Taiwan and then moved, or you, I think I read one of your interviews. I think you did some type of foreign study in college. Is that right? Yes. Yes. It's a combination. Of, it's major in, in English. Um, and with some courses in German, it's not, it's not a minor, but uh, some study of German. Yeah. And so you went to Germany and also, you found yourself in London at the Globe Theater at some point. I don't know if it was the same adventure, but uh, I'm, I'm going this direction because my uh, senior year of college, I did a foreign study at, at, with the University of London. And at that time, I was majoring in English, but I was fully convinced I was going to go back and maybe to be a small town insurance salesman or maybe a, a corporate type guy that I was told that I was good with people. And I found out later that uh, that doesn't necessarily make you a, <laughs> a good salesman or a good businessman. Uh, but I went to London and I fell in love with the theater and it changed. It, it just opened up and changed everything. I'm from a very provincial background and so I see in your biography maybe something similar happening on site there, you know, just breathing the air and going to the Globe Theater and, you know, the West End and that sort of thing. So did that open up doors to your, your visit to London, certainly to Germany? The Germans love Shakespeare. So, um, yes, I think the Globe, as you can see behind me, is a magical yeah. place. Of course, I didn't have the sophistication back then to understand this is not an exact reconstruction. It's 
a replica that's not quite at the historical site, but none of that really matters. It's the space, it's the playing space and how the spectatorship is organized, for example, how the actors interact with the audiences, how uh, the jumbo jets will fly overhead. I think they're all heading to London Gatwick. The noise and disruption that you will have just from the street and Thames outside, the elements, when it rains, actually, um, they ban umbrellas because it will block other people's views. You have to wear a poncho. So all of that, I think, was just um, a cultural shock and kind of, kind of eye-opening for me. I've never seen, never experienced anything like that before. It's a semi-outdoor theater, and the, the structure itself calls for a kind of community. And, and they were trying to built the globe and I had this study tour there. Um, I was able to donate, I forgot how much it's a very humble sum in order to help them lay a brick, right? At the globe, I felt it's a palpable connection between me and this larger world. In fact, for a long time, I felt really uncomfortable studying in London or, um, or studying in the US because of the subject matter, I felt like I don't belong, I don't fit in. This is not something I'm entitled to. Because um, I'm the wrong race, wrong gender, and all of all of those. For a long time, I, I just avoided talking about my cultural origin. I was embarrassed by it. I felt like I, if I let on, maybe maybe people would be more suspicious of me. So that, that's a, a long struggle, actually. Yeah, you don't feel ownership because of your cultural background. Now, uh, that's interesting. We're going to talk about race in a moment, but I'm interested in Shakespearean and ownership. We, uh, we will talk about decolonization, but I'm playing with some ideas here that uh, I have run across uh, in Japan when I was uh, hired in this job years ago. A couple of people said, well, you're an American. Why are you a Shakespearean? Okay. Now, you can say, okay, there's a closeness that Americans have with the Brits because, you know, the, of the immigration. But still, there's that feeling. So, you're coming in from Taiwan. So, that gap is a, is a larger gap in the minds of, uh, of you and also probably in the minds of a number of people. Uh, if they see me as as being uh, culturally dislocated from, you know, original Shakespearean ownership or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, the example, I said, listen, what do you want me to do? Be born in Stratford? And, you know, it, because you could say, well, listen, you're from uh, York, you're from the North. Uh, so you really aren't, uh, you, can, you shouldn't study Shakespeare or whatnot. And, uh, and so I said, well, there's a, uh, there's a, a guy, um, an insurance executive in Stratford necessarily have more ownership of Shakespeare than I would. You know, you can play with that idea. And uh, so you got through that, though. You you worked your way through that. And I think your book is symbolic of that, just how basically uh, Shakespeare is global, is a global phenomenon. Everybody owns Shakespeare. Nobody can claim it for themselves uh, and, and, and keep this country boy from what south carolina away or keep uh this uh taiwanese woman away we belong to the community too exactly i think in my teaching and my writing i want to reconfigure the canon it's yes 
he may have been a white male author. The, the whiteness that is contained within the canon um, is actually, there are many different shades, different layers, and uh, he may be the national poet of England, but a lot of his plays are actually set outside of England, already having an eye for proto-globalization, um, uh, perennially interested in the question of the larger world. And that's also what is fascinating. This is not just someone who wrote, you know, the Henriads, only the Henriads, or Richard III and Richard II. Actually, even in, even in Henry V, the, the Franco-British relationship, the, the tug of war, um, always interested in, in how the English identity is to be understood in a globalizing world, even in, in his early days. So I was fascinated by that and, and the settings and the, the large number of colorful characters who are from all walks of life and different cultures. Once you begin to take a closer look, you realize there's very little about Englishness per se in a vacuum. Even the bits about Englishness is defined relationally against other identities and other things. And that's where I found my, my way in, I suppose. Yeah. And I'm seeing some parallels here because I'm thinking of how many plays in Shakespeare are directly related to literature that was being translated and brought into this island nation, right? People who are living in England and they are looking out at the world and wanting to know about it, just like you were as a child. And they're going down to the bookstores and seeing, uh, you know, once those who could learn to read, but sometimes they, you know, they're what David Cressy talks about the, uh, the, the semi-literate. There's some people who are, you know, highly literate, and there are others who are semi-literate, but the uh, oral exchange of stories like Romeo and Juliet and, you know, these passionate Italians who cannot, uh, who cannot <laughs> contain themselves. And of course, all of the uh, courtiers in the play are, are very English uh, in their way they speak and uh, act and so forth. But the settings in Italy and Denmark, the settings on an island uh, in the sea somewhere, you know, in the Tempest and so forth, there's a uh, a, a kind of traveling, that, mind travel that occurs there. And the attraction for people at that time to see those narratives they knew dramatized the attraction. And I think that's part of how Shakespeare marketed himself. He stuck with those uh, very popular imaginative stories and people wanted to see the, the drama. Just like if you read Harry Potter, you would want to see the movie. How are they going? So... Uh, there's some parallels there uh, in terms of island nation cultures, people exploring, and the uh, the the adventure of reading. The closest mail, the cl closest post office was eight miles away where I grew up, and so I really was uh, out there. You know, if, if there was somebody out there, you tried to get along because you didn't have many choices. I have friends in Tokyo. They say, I don't like that person, right? You know, that person's a little this, a little that. I said, I'm not that picky, you know, because I didn't have many choices for people. And so uh, I felt isolated. I went into reading because of that. I could, you know, maybe what at that time would have been kids' books and fiction like, like you did. Well, so once you got to the States, then 
you uh, you, you were in California at Stanford. Did you you came in on a student visa? Did you start out with a student visa? Is that how it worked? Yes, I came as a student to study comparative literature, yeah. uh, primarily focused on Renaissance English literature. I have to say, growing up in Taiwan, I didn't have a racial identity. I didn't know I had a racial identity. <laughs> I didn't have one until I immigrated. And in the U.S., I received several new labels. Uh, they, they were all new and exotic to me as I was exotic to my classmates, to my professors. I became noticeable. I did not pass through. I cannot pass by. And, and that prompted me to write this recent book with Martin Orkin on race. I talk a little bit about the personal experience here, as well as the theories of race and what does race mean in different in Israel, in in the U.S. and East Asia, and so on. Uh, it's it's an eye it's eye opening, uh, I guess, in school when I read an account of a reverse experience. So in California, I realized it became um, an object of the gaze, right? But then the Bulgarian French feminist critic, Julie Kristeva, she actually had a similar but reverse experience. She talks about her visit to the Chinese village of Hu Xian in her book, The Chinese Woman. She notes that the villagers stared at her fixedly uh, and she talks about how she doesn't feel like a foreigner. She feels like an ape. That just struck me that you know, the, 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 the metaphor is so vivid. So she's an ape. It's not just a foreigner, as did you, say, you, did you say, from different planet. Uh, ape? Yes. Like uh, a monkey ape? or Yeah, like oh, a, okay. so, oh, an, an animal. An animal. An exotic animal. Yeah. Right? You, you grew up, and you see, that's what people don't understand. Everyone around you is Taiwanese. When you're growing up, you're part of a, a vast majority of people that you see. Uh, you probably didn't see many foreign nationals growing up. And so you were a, a super majority growing up. And suddenly you are uh, assigned these labels when you get to the States, even even in the best intentions. You know, you, you're when people are trying to um, uh, talk about diversity, opening and so forth. Ah, uh, yeah, that kind of happened to me when I first moved to Japan, and uh, 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 that I didn't realize I was such an American until I got here, and people would say, "Where are you from?" Which is a, is is fine. the uh, The thing was, I was Tom, and I still am Tom, the American every day, and you know, after you're here twenty years or so, when people ask you, "Where are you from?" I have friends who get increasingly irritated. Um, I have one friend who says, I'm from Ueno, which is a district in Tokyo. You know, he's been living there over, over 30 years. And, um, and I don't do that. I, I, just, I have decided that I'm not going to be irritated about that. that I'll put that down the list uh, because people are doing it uh, ingenuously. But in the States, I think it can get much more intense. You suddenly are jarred out you know, if you had grown up in California, uh, having had uh, Taiwanese parents, but you were born and raised in California, you would have been inured by the time you got to graduate school. But here it's just uh, you come in and it's wham, you are 
in a class. How did you how did you work through that? What did you do to work through that kind of shock? Interesting question. I, I, I can tell you what I still remember what I was most scared of. Um, I had to TA a Shakespeare class. It's it's a very large lecture class. It's a it's a senior professor with a team of TAs, and we all each of us had to take on discussion sessions and take on grading responsibilities for the group and assign to you. I was the only one, um, I was not only the only non-white TA, uh, teaching assistant, I was also the only one whose native language wasn't English. And um, for the entire semester, I just didn't sleep well because uh, the night before class, I would fret, I was just so worried. And in class, I worked, from copious notes, and yet I still, I was just too self-conscious. I would stumble over something small, and in my mind, of course, it's such a glaring error. Maybe they didn't notice, maybe it, it was inconspicuous, but for me, just an insurmountable psychological obstacle, I guess. Luckily, um, over there, they had specialists to teach the public speaking course is primarily aimed at international students, but really for anyone wanting to improve their teaching or public speaking. And, and that proved useful to me. I would get to design different versions of the syllabus. I would pretend to teach a class to my cohort. So the professor and other students in the class, they would pretend to be students, right? In, in a certain class and have to teach a unit to them. Um, Nerves writing, but I think... Quite a, quite a good experience. I, I went through several of those courses. But I tried to um, learn as much about American culture as possible. The, the part about football, however, I still don't get. Um, but luckily, I'm now in Washington, D.C. Um, and um, George Washington University, where I work, we don't have a football team. So it's no longer a big deal. But for some schools, it was a big deal. And, and that's just the part that I really can't get. <laughs> I can't get Americanized enough there. That, that, that's still an obstacle. Um, I wanted to say also, I didn't get irritated by the question about where you're from, um, but about the follow-up question, but where are you really from? Right? If you say Washington, D.C., that's actually where I'm from now because that's my home. But, you know, the, the, they ask, where, where are you really from in various different versions? That, that, that's a really irritating one. Um, that is fine. Uh, if I tell them I was born and raised in Taiwan and they would understand where Taiwan is, that's fine. Uh, for a long time, what I got is, oh, Thailand. And that's really irritating. Um, I suppose in Washington, D.C., people are more tuned into international politics. Everybody knows what Taiwan is about. Um, but um, in California, yeah, you'd be surprised. It's California, um, it's Northern California, it's, you often get Thailand. Thailand, uh, never heard of Taiwan. You mean Thailand, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, the idea of being Asian-American is really... Uh, assembling a lot of different, very distinct cultures. So 
you don't identify one bit with being Thai or with being Japanese or with being uh, Korean or even mainland Chinese or, or Hong Kong or you're Taiwanese. That's a distinct thing. And when you're in America, you're put together. Now, of course, in Japan, famously, foreigners are called gaijin, which is a little bit rude, or gaikokujin, which would mean foreign nationals. But that's a category in Japan because it, it just has to be because you're registered. You're not Japanese. Uh, and now beyond that, I haven't uh, I haven't suffered hostility or it, anything uh, akin to the type of racism that can happen in in the states. Uh, in fact, by and large, my life is is I'm surrounded with friends who are polite and who fully accepting my, my Japanese family and so forth. So. Uh, uh, I'm very uh, grateful to have uh, a grant from the, the people of Japan to be able to do this program. But at one point, just the question itself makes you feel a bit dislocated. Like, I cannot, I'm not allowed somehow to call my home my home, right? Even though I've been in Tokyo for 20 years or whatnot, I, uh, it, it seems to disallow me to accept where I live is where I live or my second home, or however you want to look at it. And you're, you're reminded of that by the question. I bet you feel the same, right? This, yeah. Uh, did you say South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bet Japan feels more like home at this point than South Carolina, which must be quite foreign if it, you were to come. You know, I, I go back there uh, pretty frequently, at least once a year, not this year, uh, the year of the plague, but uh, I, I stay in contact. I have family and friends and uh, that I, I really, I'm probably more diligent about staying in contact with them than I would be if I were living there uh, because I do have a sense of uh, homesickness that uh, I get because I'm, because these are great people, wonderful people that uh, I, I was uh, blessed to be born to a, a really interesting group of people in my family and uh, to have these friends. But uh, yeah, you uh, you cannot in Japan, and I'll bring this back to you, you cannot in Japan become Japanese. I'm a permanent resident. And so I don't have to go through some of the uh, loopholes or leaving and coming back. Uh, and that's the best I could hope to do. In America, you can become an American, right? That is true. You, you yes. are an American. You are just as American as that good old boy from Texas. You're mm -hmm. just as American as, you know, that uh, nice, uh, nice uh, suburban person from Michigan or whatnot. And so how about that? I mean, you don't ever, once you become an American, you don't want people to say, to question your Americanness. You're as American as anything, you know, the, the land. Well, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the society doesn't work that way, right? No, but no. That's a piece of paper, but uh, prejudices, stereotypes, they, they, they just operate independent of status or your lived experiences. They, one look and they make assumptions. Yeah. In my teaching here, in the classroom, I always have to surmount the invisible wall, the assumptions that students might make before getting to know me. Yeah. And to establish that 
that I'm qualified to teach the subject and so on. I find it interesting because in other disciplines, this is less of an issue, especially STEM, that's the science, technology, and engineering subjects that people tend to assume those are detached from cultures, from human biases, even if in science, uh, research has shown that the kind of questions you ask are very important. And the kind of questions you ask are very much influenced by your upbringing, by your culture, um, by the time period you are in. So scientific inquiry is not quote unquote neutral in that sense as in, detach, in its detachment from humanity. But there's always an assumption of, of if you teach a, a human subject, especially language and literature, it's very much aligned with your identity. Precisely like you said before, they think, you're an American, so why don't you teach American literature, for example? So the assumption is stronger in these realms compared to science and engineering. Do you still speak uh, the language of your uh, youth, and do you still communicate? Yeah, I, I, I do, um, but in an interesting way, as you know, it happens to many immigrants. I do still speak, but it's a limited context with, with, with my parents, for example. And... Uh, it would be more challenging for me to give an academic lecture, for example, in those languages. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> because that's that, that's, I'm not trained in that. I also told my students, that's another interesting fact of aspect about, about race. So I may be recruited to, to stand in, to help an institution check some boxes to fulfill diversity quota. Uh, my, my academic approaches uh, uh, used to be used to be very white and American because that's how I was taught. No different from someone else who may look white, right? And so I had to decolonize my own mind. Even if I might look Asian, I I didn't actually take a global or Asian approach to a subject, right? The theories I I was taught were white. I see you decolonize your mind. Now, that's a big one. That's a big area. Um, well, I see this. You know, if you had been male and uh, in a STEM subject working at MIT, you right. probably would feel very, very much at home. Right. Uh, and, you know, in a white lab coat or whatnot. Uh, but here you're a female, you're in, uh, you know, Western cultural tradition. Uh, which is, you know, Northern European, white uh, in, in its inception, and then further appropriated by the Victorians and made into its iconic, uh, what, em, em, empire, you know, is, is part of Shakespeare becomes an image that you put right beside the, uh, the Royal Navy, you know, or something, uh, and fully didn't intend to get there. Uh, so that's where we're moving now uh, in in criticism, I think, and you're you're pushing hard that the, that way. I suppose my very being, being you know, uh, teaching in Japan and Tokyo or whatnot, it's necessarily I have to decolonize Shakespeare. Um, and so, tell us something about those approaches that you would take that do, uh, let's say, remove Shakespeare from the iconic sta status, from the uh, uh, status of. Uh, the white status or cultural dominance hege hegemony and 
and removes Shakespeare into a more open field, uh, global and, and uh, well, open. Yeah, so in other words, I was saying that as important as representation might be, we need to dig slightly deeper to look at the layers underneath. It's important to have uh, female Asian faculty or black faculty in early modern Shakespeare studies. But it's just as important to look at our methodologies, have we decolonized our minds rather than just look at, it's not, it's a question that's more than skin deep. You can't just say, I'm there, my presence automatically, right? Automatically means diversity. Maybe it's not, maybe I'm just replicating my Stanford professors, you know, until, until of course I became more aware um, as I practiced the profession, but in the beginning, that wasn't the case. So you can't simply say, uh, there you go, faculty looks diverse, but what if they don't take diverse approaches? Now, there are many ways to um, open up the canon, as you can see the first folio behind me. You can do it textually, even if I, my approach tend to be always uh, performative, but we start with text. Um, I told my students, this canon, it's like good cheese, it's full of holes, it's porous. Imagine you're a mouse, you're digging your way through, eating your way through the delicious cheese. Um, no two mice would follow the same path down. And an example is in the Tempest. Taliban yells, you've taught me language, and my prophet on it is I know how to curse. Prospero and his daughter Miranda taught their slave, Caliban, that he should yell, you've taught me language. What does language mean? I turn international students as well as students who speak other languages in my classroom into an asset. So first, they'll try to translate that into languages they know. It could be Spanish, for example, or Italian. Maybe it's a heritage language. Um, for those who don't know other languages, they would have to elaborate. They would uh, translate it into modern English. There you go. It instantly opened it up because some people said language means feelings or how to feel, um, emotions, worldviews. So you've taught me language, you taught me your worldviews. You've taught me angst. And there are so many ways. Angst, the surface is really simple. But once you pause and rethink, you realize there are many different ways in to the canon. For, for a simple moment like this, what does language mean? And it can be a translation exercise. It can simply be a group exercise to think through how many different meanings there might be. And then we'll compare that to three stage or scrum interpretations of that particular scene. And that's how you open up and understand how powerful um, actors, directors, and even readers can be. This is not a one-way street, but a tug of war, if, if you would, or simply an, an act of wrestling with the text and owning it eventually. So that's just one example of how you might open it up. Yeah, and these, uh, these plays... Originally, I don't like to talk about original intentions of Shakespeare so much because uh, when you get into textual studies, you see very quickly that there was a transfer of foul papers to fair papers to text to maybe actors reciting. And, you know, the, the, you don't really know precisely what Shakespeare may have meant in, in any particular word, but there is an, an intentionality in 
in the market for plays at that time because they ran them through court and through public theater very often, particularly, I think, the comedies. So they had to have this flexibility where they could entertain aristocrats um, and also with aristocratic taste, one presumes, uh, which uh, and uh, and also the, uh, the 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 people that you know open it up to the people. So you had to have the appearance of sophistication, and then also some uh, good popular stuff in there, humor and sometimes body uh, humor. Of course, sword fights. I think everyone is entertained by sword fights on stage. I, I can't imagine, you know, the aristocrats would love it, and everybody likes a sword fight. You know, it's just exciting. To, the and. Um, and also uh, murder, you know, <laughs> love, uh, unrequited love. Those are that, that hits on every level, and those are things that uh, do not belong to a a race or a class. You know, it belongs to the human condition, and that's what I'm thinking. You're talking about with the cheese image. You know, you have to get back into it or sort of peel away some of the layers that we have placed on it, uh, appropriated uh, it for. Um, Speaking of the original, I suppose one, one um, element we have to bear in mind is actually some of the racially diverse or the state representations of minority, they were actually initially intended for white representation, right? Othello's blackness makes the character stand out um, in his adopted Venetian society because blackness signals a wide range of positive and negative attributes or rather more richness to be more accurate, right? In, in the context of the play. Um, but Othello is also notable for being a white man in black makeup to begin with. What does that say about the bias, um, a lot of people perceive as biased portrayal of the character? Well, it, you can explain it away by the fact that Othello was a role created for the white early modern English actor Richard Burbage, as you can see behind me here. Mm -hmm. He's the first to play many of these tragic characters and Shakespeare Taylor made those roles for his best friend and Paul and uh, in the company where Shakespeare's a stakeholder. So all of these are uh, important facts to bear in mind as we try to understand these roles in a global context. Today it's unimaginable to do blackface, but for a very long time and only up until recently, I want to say half a century ago, where it became more taboo. And, and that long history should always be on the back of our, our mind as we seek to understand a long racialized history. Yeah. Well, this kind of brings us into the uh, some of the stuff you talk about in, in some of your other research, and you've also edited editions where you talked about globalization, but also ethical modes, ethics, and there it is. And of course, that goes into the idea of decolonization. But I thought that that when I first saw that, uh, I thought that was the most interesting choice of words, ethic. You know, that there's there's the idea of ethical production. Uh, yes. I noticed that a lot of, especially adaptations, whether in English or other languages, adaptations, they always lay an ethical claim. They would say that Shakespeare is such an important vehicle for us to explore these difficult political 
questions, we couldn't have these conversations. But Shakespeare as a, you know, the third party presence of Shakespeare, right? Somewhat neutral, but also his canonical status enables these discussions to take place in an allegorical form. Sometimes they're dealing with censorship. So they always lay an ethical claim. I also observe that in discussions of adaptations, people like to talk about ethical responsibilities. Peter Brook, borrowing from Indian traditions. Is it ethical? Is it doing it in a responsible fashion, right? Is it just misappropriating some cultural elements? So Western directors often face those accusations, but how about African directors or Asian directors? Do they face the same accusations? Would it be problematic if somehow they are automatically exonerated from misappropriating Western cultures? There's Orientalism at work, but there's also Occidentalism at work. So in this edited volume, we're looking at the question of what role does ethics have in in adaptation as a practice, right? Um, It's about borrowing from Shakespeare, but also borrowing from from maybe your own traditional culture or from somebody else's. And in the process of creating this hybrid art, in this mingling process, um, how do we stay mindful of not misappropriating cultures, of creating something that is meaningful artistically compelling, but but not overstepping the boundary of misappropriating elements without acknowledging their significance. Ninagawa is as much an appropriator, right? Because he's appropriating the cherry blossom symbol. Um, and he's not the first, he's just one of the most recent one that made it famous before him. There were novelists and e- even stage directors who were using that as a symbol. And Ninagawa came in and made it famous. So, so he also appropriates a part of Japanese culture for a specific purpose. So it's not just a critique of Western directors, they must be wrong. But rather, I think everyone needs to be cognizant regardless of their cultural origin. Yeah. And this, this is really, really complicated because when I'm looking at it from my side, I used to think when I was years ago, when I was studying in graduate school in the States, that I had a, a better grip because we had the comfort of uh, Edward Said, the Said thesis, which has come under a lot of scrutiny, you know, in the years since. But we were under that umbrella, you know, dominant hegemonic, you know, going, going back to Gramsci and, and the whole idea of, you know, the hegemonic culture. You know, pulling from and in fact de- defining the uh, the subdominant culture and so forth. But then um, I noticed in a recent book by Adele Lee, uh, where she makes a very strong point that you know European travelers to into the Ming Dynasty in in uh, China were not going into a subdominant culture; they were going into an extremely and powerful imperial. Uh, line of people who were actually much more advanced in many, many ways than the Europeans were. And of course, the Japanese uh, uh, refer to the early Portuguese sailors as the uh, Southern barbarians, because they came in from the South and uh, the, the non-bond, the Southern barbarians. So there, there was sort of a, from that side, this kind of um, 
racism. So things get reversed over here. You go through the looking glass and look back. And so the idea of appropriation becomes an ethical appropriation becomes a, a little more difficult. But I think there's some basic things that you get to into the book. Uh, the idea of mutual respect, just mutual respect. You start there. You're probably on pretty good grounds. Uh, sensitivity, whatever that is, being because people who ask you where are you from, they, they don't mean to. They don't mean to hurt you. They they don't. They they just aren't sensitive. They're like when I was there were when I was a kid. There were people who would throw uh, uh, Coca Cola bottles out of the. You know, they'd finish their bottle and just throw it out of the car, and they were just completely oblivious to the fact that that thing did not, you know, decompose. <laughs> You know, it, it just there was no awareness, no uh, sensitivity to it. And once you raise consciousness, the amount of litter fell off very quickly. Uh, and I think that's what we're doing. But sometimes you feel, particularly with this transgender movement and the Me Too, you know, raising sensibility, someone who looks like me, uh, feel like you're walking across a cow pasture with an increasing number of cows and what they leave behind, and you have to watch your step a little more closely or else you're going to step in it. So even me, I am have years of training and cultural sensitivity, but I can still step in it. And so it, at some point, it can get a little irritating. I appreciate the sentiment and, you know, the, the cautiousness that you, that you just described. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful for you to do that. And uh, I would say, don't feel overly self-conscious. Isn't it? It's always identity politics. And, and we are always at some intersection of different identities. Nobody is automatically entitled to be always, quote, righteous. Uh -huh. um, and it always takes effort. A constant effort to to think through, try to be in others' shoes. Someone who's in a vulnerable position, like me, may in fact enjoy other privileges. I'm married to a white man, for example. Um, we're doing relatively well financially. Um, so this class issue as well. I constantly think about those. So it's not just gender and race, but many other factors. And I believe every one of us um, are at the intersections of various, um, of, of any given number of these elements. Um, so we look at our privileges. We think about the oppression that takes place in, in some context, maybe we happen to be the victim. In other contexts, we do have privilege and we have to keep an eye out for that. So it's, it's all relative. I think the most beautiful thing that Shakespeare and literature can teach us is that there are multiple versions of the same stories. And that also is why global Shakespeare as a field attracts me. Multiple versions of the same story and how that that is in itself liberating. Uh, maybe, maybe it's time for our Japanese audience sake to show some concrete examples. We talked at length about ethics, about appropriation, and I thought it might be useful to begin with Bud Lerman's famous Romeo and Juliet. Go ahead with Romeo and Juliet. Thank you, yes. To see some concrete examples of appropriation at work, we can begin with Bud Lerman's famous film, Romeo plus Juliet, 
from 1996. And what we're going to look at is some parallel between that thumb and other versions. Like I said, multiple versions of this uh, of the same story, but not quite the same story and the end, right? Uh, this is the framing device, the famous prologue to two households, both alike in dignity. But in Lerman, they do it three times, which is fascinating. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. So that's enough to give us a sense of what it is happening. And there's a third round as well. First, you have the emotional detached TV anchor. And then you have a very MTV style reality TV kind of reporting with solemn male voice, right? With operatic music. And there's a Singaporean creative take of this. It's called Chicken Rice War. I love the film from 2000 because they're very creatively parodies Lerman as well as global teen culture, among many other things. And they did the prologue in an almost similar fashion. And it looks like this. In fair Ang Mokyo, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge bred to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers choose their chicken rice. What are you saying? Do you think Mr. Tan and Amokyo can understand you? When I told you not to speak in Singlish, I didn't ask you to sound like Shakespeare. Do it again. Do it again. They have a round two as well, sung as Cantonese opera by this lady who owns a beverage store next to the two feuding families who both sell chicken rice. And like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, there's an epilogue of sorts delivered again by the TV anchor, just like in Lerman. And thus ends the saga of the Chans and the Wongs, two families torn apart by hatred and anger, yet ironically joined together by hatred and anger. Out of these destructive emotions, love blossom. And the story, it seems at the end, it's a happy one. There's a Brazilian version of Tour to the Globe. I won't show it. Instead, I'll just show a shot. It looks like this. You have clowns and dancers. They, they make their way onto the stage through the audiences. And they, had the, they delivered the prologue as a puppet show here. So that's just one example of how many different ways to tell this story. Maybe it's cliched for some, but definitely not cliched in any of these versions. And 
There is cross-cultural borrowing, but more interesting to me is cross-cultural conversations going on, you know, parodying each other, um, maybe paying homage to or referencing in other directors' works. And, and so they circumvent Shakespeare to some degree, right? Shakespeare is no longer the origin text for that Singaporean film. Very clearly, it's Lerman's Romeo plus Julia being the origin text. That is so interesting that the the original text is a a um, adaptation of an adaptation. Yes. And also, yeah. uh, in in a similar mood, uh, almost. Well, I, I would say Lerman at places. Uh, I've used that production a lot in my teaching over the years, and uh, uh, it gets campy and artistic campy, right? The, uh, like you would see in a Tarantino movie. Uh, it's is uh, is kitsch brought to the highest level and and reaches a sort of art form, uh, particularly with the way they handle the uh, first uh, street fight scene and, and so forth, over the top, uh, and then you find you find yourself laughing in a play that really is supposed to be a tragedy. Uh, so uh, they do quite a lot with it that really. Uh, unanchor it from the you know, 16th century origins of it. Although there is in, you miss it, but even you don't see it in many of these productions, but there are musicians that come through from time to time in the text. And there's, a, there's some comic exchanges, the, the young boy who can't read and he has to go to Romeo that, you know, there, there is comedy in there. Uh, so uh, but I, I love that 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 migration through, uh, let's just say Australia into uh, yeah yeah uh, Australian director filming in Mexico actually it's Mexico in Mexico yeah they dress it up to be a fictional American city Verona Beach so there's yes. just so many layers yes. it's an English language film but it is so global if you peel back the layers yeah yeah. Um, and the guns that are branded uh, swords, the brand name is swords. That's how you get around the textual sure. problem yeah. of drawing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the print. I think they, they're onto something. I, I don't, I, I love the campiness. This is not Franco Zeffirelli for sure, but the, they have this level of campiness that actually brings us back to certain part of the core of Shakespeare, you yeah. might say. Because Shakespeare's Romeo and Julia was highly experimental in its times. It com combines tragedy and comic, tragic and comic elements. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fast paced. Yeah. And he was really hitting on a story. It might have been the most popular story. Looking back over the textual history of what is mm -hmm. Arthur Brooks' uh, first translation, and it appears in William Painter's Palace of Pleasure. Uh, and it was uh, reprinted. So this is a, you know, story that was very well known so it, a little bit risky uh just like when you make a movie of a famous book you get people who will say well that's not the way i saw uh gatsby or that's not the way that i uh that, that i interpreted the godfather when i read puzo or whatnot or my you're you're messing up um hermione and and, and harry potter you know you're taking a risk when you uh when you do a stage or film version of a of a canonized story. You mentioned uh, different ways to open up the canon, to de decolonize the canon in our mind before. So we had those video instances. It occurred to me, one of the most famous lines uh, could also lend itself to such an exercise. And of course, 
it is the to be or not to be. Um, if you look closely, you realize that this famous line um, is highly problematic. We have a versatile verb, a Swiss knife verb to be, um, but it doesn't really mean anything without context. It is as ambiguous in English as, as, as it is in many other languages when translated. It has been translated into Russian, German, Arabic, for example, as to do, to die, and to have. The question, of, of course, is to have what or not to have what. That's never specified. Um, there's, of course, a beautiful symmetry here. That's what makes it quotable throughout the centuries. But um, if you look at the different translations, particularly in Japanese, a language that, that doesn't like to specify the subject, they often elide the subject, you begin to have insights as well as problems. Because um, in all of these works, they're essentially rewriting it. The Japanese doesn't have the word to be without semantic context. Um, working with Japanese, uh, which is very complex from a sociolinguistic point of view, a translator would have to wrestle with more than 20, I think, first and second person pronouns just to maintain the ambiguity. Uh, and, and I think ambiguity is our friend in history, in literature, uh, you know, because it allows the porousness, it allows interpretations. But even such a simple line, um, it allows us to have some insight into literary ambiguity that connects minds for change because ambiguity prompts you to think. Yeah, and the Japanese, I'm looking at the top there, uh, uh, it's, it says, you know, to live or to die and uh, to be or not to be. There's no to be verb. In that is not to be or not to be, right? It, it's yeah, so one you, interpretation. You, you, uh, th there's an existential problem. Uh, Kawhi Sense at University of Tokyo has collected, I think, 89 translations uh, wow. in Japanese and they all differ. And I believe that's his translation you have up there, although Soriwa Mondai Da. Uh, Mondai really is a problem rather than a question, but it could be a question. It could, it, but a Mondai is a very uh, big fat term in Japanese of problem, uh, question. You could do that, but, uh, but the, the no to be verb is really a big problem. Uh, for Japanese translators, because it does speak to the uh, essential element of Western language, I guess, in particular. In Spanish, you have two, and there are other, you know, there's, there's a lot of being in Spanish. And uh, I mean, even in English, nobody uses to be just like this, standing alone. Right, right. The infinitive form, you mean, yeah. Right, you wouldn't use yeah. the infinitive form. And also without subject, without object. And yeah. it, it, it's a mystery. So technically all of these, none of these are saying to be or not to be. Yeah. What about but Chinese? Family, what is it saying, if you yeah. ask? Yeah, or do, do you have it in Chinese to, to be? Uh, again, it's very close to the Japanese. One of the most famous one is um, to live on or to succumb to ruins, to survive or not to survive. Essentially, they just do away with infinitive. You have to yeah. insert something. Yeah, that so that whole German philosophical. What is it that Heidegger is it? Design, design, <laughs> being. You know that that concept uh, sort of is not as strong uh, in 
and I want to say maybe cultures that feel more a collective identity, but you know, who felt more of a collective identity, you know, than Germans or, you know, to, you know, to, uh, so I don't know. I don't know how that's a very interesting etymological question there. Uh, and I, thank you for bringing that up to see that to be or not to be in, in those languages and the variety there. Yeah. I sometimes do similar exercise. It doesn't have to be to be or not to be, or um, you can take any line, any passage from Shakespeare with enough ambiguity and you can turn it into a class activity, whether it's co-translation or simply uh, providing an interpretation uh, of it. And each group will come up with essentially a different story. Yeah. Well, now, if you... Uh... Uh, would like we can move on uh, to some of the digital work that you're doing. Part of the uh, mission of the program is to talk about developments in digital technology, and you're very big into that. And particularly with uh, your global Shakespeare, your archive of uh, videos and and other materials, and. I wanted to bring up the uh, inter Internet Shakespeare editions, one of my favorite things in the world, not even websites. It goes beyond websites. One of my favorite things in the world. There you are. And if you could go to the text and Hamlet um, and uh, Hamlet over there and let's see. It will and go to the editor modern editor's version is what I use in class, which is the first line up there. Yeah. All right. And I wanted to show you an example of what I can do. If you go down to Francisco in line uh, six, unfold yourself. You click unfold yourself. Identify who you are. Well, you know, if I think native speakers might, we don't ever say unfold yourself, but we might understand what that might, you know, show who you are. It might even mean stand up, you know, instead of crouching down. I don't know. But uh, for my students who are second language and they're very good in English, but the second language and they're very detailed in terms of their uh, reading of these plays. So they'll, that will give them pause, unfold yourself and now I can just click that, boom, identify who you are, and we can move on uh, because we do tend to go line to line. But uh, now that's, that's all the way through. You have those annotations, and it's such a reading aid uh, in Hamlet and in Shakespeare, and it makes everything it's just wonderful work there. Uh, but not all the plays that are up there are annotated yet. You're still it, – it, there's a – it takes time, doesn't it, to get those those up there? Do, what's the ultimate goal to get all of them in and annotated like this edition? Yes, um, so I'm on the advisory board. I'm no longer as involved as I was before when I was um, the ISC's general performance editor. And I have been involved and been in admiring the key people behind this. It's really Michael Best, uh, Best yeah. key project at University of Victoria in Canada. Janelle Jenstead uh, is the new leader. And there's, there's a group of very prestigious scholars working tirelessly behind it. This Hamlet 
example is actually edited by David Bevington. Bevington uh, and each yeah. play is taken up by a very capable scholar and textual editor. It takes time, of course, to go through all of them. Eventually, we hope every play will look like this. Um, my involvement has primarily been uh, the, on the performance side, the performance database, uh, collecting collecting more metadata, for example, uh, as well as uh, in eventually to insert performance notes so that they can elucidate alongside with the textual notes, you know, what a passage might mean. And I believe Eric Rasmussen is taking the lead of the, of the textual editing. So it's a tripartite structure and deeply collaborative. It's a huge team. There's also a certain degree of crowdsourcing behind this. This is really a wonderful and long-lasting digital humanities project in terms of it's designed not to fail. It's designed even if there's a clear origin, a founder, but it's not designed around just one person. If the person suddenly disappears with the project die, I think that's the concern of a lot of digital humanities projects. But this one has a um, a momentum, right? It's self-sustaining and it's an entire team. Uh, for, for all of us, it's a labor of love, yeah. but also uh, shared burden and contribution so that it won't, it won't rise and fall just all because of one person or a, a, a small number of people. I think that's an important design element in successful uh, projects with longevity. But this toggle view really is, um, as you're saying, um, my students appreciate that too. But here sometimes we provide, you know, in the second quarter, you have this textual variant versus the first folio. And that's really useful as well to show the already within the Shakespearean canon, as I was saying before, there are multiple stories. There are multiple versions of Hamlet. They are not all the same. The subtle differences matter. And that enables students to gain the capacity to interpret complex text. So in 10 years, they may not remember and they don't have to. The Shakespearean bits and pieces that they learn here, what, what's important is they learn the ability to analyze complex text. And that's desperately needed in, in the culture we live in. Yeah. Now, I do see up under Bevington's name, not peer-reviewed, and that's an important detail. The scholars you're mentioning are all uh, very reputable. They've, they've, they've won the day in terms of their reputation and so forth. For a young scholar coming on, uh, and this you know, may take another 20 years, but you know, it it's probably will just continue to grow and grow. But for a young scholar, they need those peer-reviewed publications. So getting into textual editing, and look at this magnificent work. I don't know, did, uh, we talked about this, I think, uh, some other point, that uh, digital publication basically is not considered as strong as standard journal you know, print publication, and which I find to be entirely unfair. Uh, as an editor-in-chief of a journal myself, a digital open-access journal, I don't view the... Uh, 
the New York Times, when I read it on my computer or on my phone or whatnot, I don't view that article as lesser than something that would be on the actual paper. So that's a problem. And also, I think it's been a problem for uh, longer than the digital age where uh, editors uh, and all of the work, the hours and hours and hours of work that goes into editing Shakespeare, you, un you end up with basically one <laughs> you know, if you edit Hamlet, you know, you could, which could take you 10 years, you end up with one product. And whereas you, you have people in the sciences and in other disciplines who have, you know, 10 names on a paper as authors and they're gunning out, you know, 10, they're getting 10 a year. And whereas the editor is getting one every five years or something, it's, it's not fair. And I wanted to bring that up as a something a challenge for the future in evaluating uh, all all faculty have to go through evaluation uh it's i think it is one of the big big problems of uh for young scholars in particular it is such a huge problem and that's why uh, most people on the team already have tenure have relative security in the profession and institution we're trying to change that by providing uh, transparency on the peer review process, by providing letters, for example, for promotion cases, um, to lay out how the work is rigorously peer reviewed. And exactly like you said, the, the bias, I think we are at the tipping point, the bias against digital humanities or digitally published works um, is subsiding, but there, there are still some in the administration who hold a, a more outdated view, but I believe with documentation that can be changed, especially I think this pandemic has taught the entire world of the importance of accessibility. And even in terms of book publication, if something is available as ebook, it has wider circulation and therefore more impact. Impact, um, I don't know about you, but in North American context, it's such a keyword in promotion. Now, can you document what kind of impact your scholarship had? That basically comes down to uh, circulation of people read and cite your work. Um, it's this prestige to a to a codex book, a physical book, but I think much more important is the digital form of circulation. Uh, why would you say an e-book from Oxford University Press is less rigorous than the same book printed on paper, right? Yeah. And so once you lay bare all these whole processes, make comparisons, it becomes patently clear to administrators that they cannot hold this against the candidate. And, yeah. and like you said, editorial work is hard and it takes a long time. So this King Lear I'm showing here with Michael Best, the founder, he's taking on this colossal project. It's a pinnacle project to bring together the three non-King Lears, there's the folio and the quartos, um, and to provide a modernized edition. It's not live yet, but eventually, I'm really honored to be able to be writing the introduction to performance history here in his edition. And eventually we wish to provide the toggle view. So not just when you mouse over, you have uh, qualities, but it shows that in the first quarter, it says equalities. And that already can provide rich classroom discussion as well as new scholarly questions. And if you click on it, there's a gloss, we'll try to gloss the word choice 
But more interestingly, when the whole thing is done, you will simply toggle over and you will be able to see textual variants in all of the three different King Lears. So essentially, it's one text and it's digitally formatted in a way that you're able to read text at the same time. It really enriches the Lear experience. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. I just love that. Also, you're involved with DRE, Digital Renaissance Editions, which focuses on non-Shakespearean, or you have that listed as one one of your interests or involvements. And uh, I know Brett Hurst, who's at Leeds now, and have talked with him at other conferences about that. And of course, there are other people with this. I did my uh, my my dissertation was on Marlowe, actually, not Shakespeare. So I've always had this fondness for the off-Shakespeare uh, people, uh, particularly Marlowe, but also um, Webster and uh, uh, Middleton. Tell us a little about this, where this is going to go. I really should let Brett speak for the, to, to this. He's the founder and the, has been a key leader behind the DRE as someone on the board, I would just speak generally. The, the goal really is, like you said, to bring uh, the study, particularly performances of non-Shakespearean early modern plays into the purview, into, um, into the classroom uh, to promote the study and discussion of particularly um, what some have regarded as obscure early modern text. And this project is actually an alliance project with the Internet Shakespeare Editions at University of Victoria. So UVic has been the powerhouse behind this. And um, speaking of digital humanities strategies, this project exemplifies uh, a very productive trend that is to team up with other projects that don't have to be on the same topic. But as you can see, the DRE has begun to emulate and to, uh, to take on, wherever appropriate, the design elements of Internet Shakespeare editions. So uh, a successful project with longevity might be modeling best practices in the field and other projects, they would therefore save time and effort. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. They would take on um, a tried and true structure. Yeah, the reason I'm sort of going around the uh, bend here uh, to get to a point, this type of work for a scholar who uh, might be working in second or third language, uh, who doesn't feel comfortable trying to grapple with the English that you have to use if you're trying to uh, compare Jacques Derrida with someone else or talk about the ethics of appropriation uh, and who has talents in other areas. This is a wonderful area uh, where you could, particularly in Japan, you could get absolutely precise, wonderful textual editing. And I know people who, who do this. And if we could make sure that they are given a younger scholar the credit deserved, right, uh, for doing this, it would be a wonderful career path 
to spend time on doing this. And uh, there's a maybe certain stereotypes are true. I don't know. But there's a diligence here that I see in my, my students that I don't see to be a, a Western. I see it more a Japanese uh, specifically Japanese diligence, a um, never letting go of the smallest detail and getting everything done and a desire for perfection that is what you need, what drives excellent textual editing. So maybe in the future. I very much agree. I think it's a wonderful avenue for collaboration. I hope there will be more. Yeah. Um, well, scholars located beyond the Anglo-European West to really be engaged in this kind of work. Excellent. And so uh, any, do you have anything else that you would like to show us? Um, I would just insert, I think, the digital project that I actually founded. And of course, that's the Global Shakespeare. I understand your students are using this already and people yeah. are familiar with it. Um, Peter Donaldson at MIT and I co-founded this to make performances accessible. This is an open access platform. This is the first and still the only video-centric platform that is open access. That doesn't charge a fee. That doesn't require you to register and, uh, and create an account. Um, there are other similar ones. They're focused on the London Globes productions or RSC, various publishers in the West. They have, they have um, similar platforms, but much smaller in terms of scale, none of them global. Um, here you can organize the works by region, by languages, by the place. And really um, at the beginning of tonight's talk, I talked about how how when I was young, I was already a collector. So this is, this is just my collector um, passion writ large, but also it's my desire to bring the fascinating works to more students, to more scholars, uh, so that we can have a productive conversation. I don't believe that there's uh, some scholars, they, they think that once they have something precious, they treat performance videos or access to performance material as private property. So and they will sit on it and they will be the only one who can publish on them. For me, that's really counterproductive because then you cannot replicate or verify the data from a scientific point of view and fewer people will be discussing them. So I, my goal has always been to make everything as accessible as possible. Um, it'll be wonderful if tons of people publish on the same adaptations. I, I don't want the value of scholarship to lie in a reportage mode, as in so-and-so reported on this exotic piece, and, and it would, Global Shakespeare will forever be trapped in the exotic realm, like in the museum. And so for the, quote, mainstream scholars, they were treated as a harmless hobby for those of you who happen to be interested in it. And that really has been the curse of the field. There's just the indifference, there's no interest in it. Um, and I, my hope is something like this can change things. That's the MIT. Uh, I, it's a criticism that I have. It's a very strong in element, not all of Japanese culture, but among certain artists to really be protective of their property rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you search for Ninagawa, it's hard to find uh, right. Right. ways that are uh, not 
protected. And uh, I don't know of any film version. There probably is a version out there. I know this. We had a Milton conference about eight years ago, and we had a local no troupe, a very fine group of actors, do an adaptation of Milton Sampson Agonistes. Uh, and it was it, it was stunning, really. And they made a uh, they filmed it. And I asked uh, my colleague, I said, well, why don't we get that and make copies and distribute it to the people who attended? She said, oh, no, they're not going to release that. That's their property. I said, but it's going to die. Nobody's going to see it. It's gone. It you, you kill it by doing that. And I don't understand that way of thinking. And it's not just Japanese. It's all over the world. People are very protective. I think it's outdated. They don't understand. Yeah. They don't and, understand, yeah. MIT Global Shakespeare's have been helping them. It's the, quite the opposite. People who've seen the fascinating performances, even bits and pieces, they don't settle for this. It's not like they've seen this and, and, and done with it. Actually, they will crave the live performance. So this actually brings people to the theater. Yeah. And there's, of course, preservation aspect, but it's a feedback loop. Yeah, once people see something fascinating, they want to be there in person. And that has always been the trend. Yeah. yeah. This doesn't replace. This is simply a teaser, a, a, a trailer free advertisement. Yeah. It's free advertisement. And the, uh, the more um, available you make it, the better off you are. I'm very happy with what we've covered. We've been comprehensive, and it's been just delightful to sit down. It just feels great to sit down and talk with you. Uh, and, uh, you know, even though we can't get you over here now, maybe uh, if we can, uh, if I twist your arm or something in the future, we could get you over to Tokyo, and uh, maybe you could talk to our students and maybe some students at other universities. Uh, okay. I know you're busy. I know you're busy. The amount of work that you've done. But anyway, I am so grateful to you for spending this time with us. This will be circulated among my uh, students, of course, and, uh, and my friends in the uh, Shakespeare Society of Japan, who uh, would be delighted to hear what you have to say in the future, if we can do so face to face, -to -face at some point. And so thank you so much, Alexa. Thank you. It, it is such an honor, very special recording, and to have this chat, I appreciate the long form. Yeah. So it's been wonderful. I, I am eager to hear the feedback from your audiences. Okay, you will. You will, I promise you.